0: New Testament praise and worship. This is like the roof on the house. Foundation, knowing him, the walls, knowing each other, taking seriously what he had to say. The roof is praise and worship. I mean, we are heading to heaven to worship the Lord, and we get to taste that as we worship him even now. The biggest book of the Bible is a book of worship. The central book of the Bible is the same book. You open your Bible to the middle, it's going to open the Psalms. The vast majority of those psalms was written by a man that tasted the New Testament. I believe he tasted it. Because according to the Old Testament, he should have been killed for his sins. The law of Moses should have been stoned for adultery and murder. But God forgave him. He had consequences for his sin. But God, in his mercy, said, you know, through you, my son's going to come. During his reign as king... David wanted to take the Ark of the Covenant out of captivity. What happened was, when Israel was born, they were born in slavery in Egypt. And God raised up a man named Moses to deliver them from Egypt. You ever watch the Ten Commandments? There's that story. It's an amazing story. And during the course of their journeying from slavery to the Promised Land, God instituted tabernacle worship. Gave him dimensions for building these pieces of furniture. There's an altar for offering sacrifices for their sin. There's a big bowl or laver of water for washing while they ministered. We could go into how the furniture was laid out in the shape of a cross and a lot of things about it. It's an amazing study. The key piece of furniture there was what was called the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's about this Ark of the Covenant. It supposedly had great powers. Or God resided in it. And it was a box overlaid in gold with handles on it to carry because they couldn't touch the box. It was so powerful they'd die. On top of the box was a lid made of gold and two angels carved out of gold, beaten gold, looking down on the lid. Inside the lid was a copy of the Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, God fed them manna, And Aaron's rod, that was symbolic of authority, that had budded almonds. They were inside that box. And the angels are looking down on the lid, which is called the mercy seat. And the priests, once a year, would offer up special sacrifices and take blood and put it on the mercy seat. And God would see the blood and accept the sacrifice as being a substitutionary payment for the sins of the people for another year. Before David became king, Israel thought, this box has special powers. We're going to take it to battle and win victory. And God allowed the box to be captured. Their enemies held it. But whoever kept the box had great problems. Like one time they put it in a temple with an idol, and the next morning they woke up, the idol was broken in pieces laying down on the ground. People that kept the box would get tumors, they get hemorrhoids and other embarrassing things. So they didn't want this box. So to make a long story short, God used David to get the box back, to get the Ark of the Covenant back. He didn't take it back to the tabernacle. He wanted to build a temple, which would be a, a building instead of a tent. Tabernacle's tabernacle is a tent. But this temple would be a replica or an enlargement of what the tent was. And David's son did it. But David wasn't allowed to do it. But God did allow him to take it to Jerusalem and set up a tent. Just a tent. Over it. And organize praise and worship 24-7. Without all the rituals of the Old Testament. It, I believe, was a picture of the New Testament. That 24-7 we can have communion with God. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through all that religion. We can know God for ourselves. So during the reign of David, there was this chapter of called the Tabernacle of David. You could preach about praise and worship from the psalm and still be very New Testament about it. But I thought, let's see what the New Testament by itself, has to say about praise and worship. But I was surprised by what I found. Number one, God's glorious love for us should be our primary reason for praise and worship. Meeting a woman at the well, Jesus in John 4 told her the Father was seeking true worshipers who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. God's love, His grace is our primary reason for praise and worship. So we'll never run out of reasons to praise Him, because He just loves us. Oh, how He loves us. That song, such a simple song, although the verses aren't simple. Love like a hurricane, I am a tree. And the unforeseen kiss. You know the original words to that were sloppy wet kiss. And that just messed with people's minds. Number two, New Testament believers are instructed to sing with grace to the Lord. What is grace? It's God's undeserved favor. We aren't worthy to praise Him, but He's made us worthy. So we praise Him for His grace, and we praise Him by His grace. Does that make sense? We praise Him for His grace, we praise Him by His grace. Number 3 giving thanks always for all things should accompany our singing. How can I give him thanks for everything? There's some things in life we can't give him thanks for. But if we hold on and trust God, he can take those messes and make messages out of them. The story's not over. So you can thank him in advance. Lord, I thank you that this test is going to become a testimony. Good is going to come out of this. We have the promise. Romans 8.28 All things work together for good to those that love God who are called according to His purpose. So Everything's good. Number four, we're told to rejoice always. What is rejoice? So you go home tonight. If you've got a TV, look for a sports channel. And watch the crowd. That's rejoicing. Your team scores. Yes. Yes. There's four Greek words for rejoice. One of them is the word ghoul. And it means to spin around violently. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a place for rejoicing. There was a pastor named Judson Cornwall who wrote some books on praise and worship. And in one of his books he shared this story that it was a member of his church that was rather stoic, rather somber. He definitely obeyed the verse that says, Be still and know that I am God. And one day he spoke to him. He says, Why don't you ever rejoice? He said, I know it's in the Bible, but it's just not my nature. During the course of their relationship, eventually Judson went with this guy to watch a football game or a sports activity involving his grandkids. And one of the grandchildren scored a point or a touchdown or whatever, and that guy came out of his seat. Yeah! Oh, you go, boy. And Judson Cornwall purposely did this. And the guy turned to him and said, What's wrong with you? He scored. What's wrong with you? And Judson looked up at him and said, It's not my nature. <laughs> Rejoice, it is our nature. It is amazing to watch concerts now. You ever watch a concert on TV? Everybody up front has their hands raised like they're worshiping. What is that? Are they feeling the vibes or not? I don't know. I think we naturally are made to worship. And people are going to worship something if they're not going to worship God. Bob Dylan wrote that song. you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Number five, we are encouraged to praise continually. So this is not just a Sunday morning thing. It's to be a continual thing. Alright, number six. Genuine faith that has been tested gives praise to God. What does that mean? It means, to me, it means praise is more than a song. Praise is more than a noise. Praise is more than rejoicing. The fact you're continuing to trust God when you're going through hell, that is giving God glory. He can say, look at my son. Look at my daughter. They are trusting me. Wow, that's so honoring Number seven, the sufferings of Christ should inspire us to rejoice when we are tried. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're being slandered at work or at school, this is painful, but it's a reality. There's nothing you can do about it except make it worse. Your friends can defend you, but sometimes you just got to keep quiet. In fact, your lawyer will tell you, you know, if it's a really serious thing, you go see a lawyer. The lawyer will say, let me handle it. You can't say anything. The newspaper will come and ask you questions. The TV cameras will come show up. You can't say anything. You just keep your mouth shut. Trust the authorities to handle the case. When Christ was slandered, he didn't open his mouth. If that ever happens to you, it will give you a taste of what he felt like. It will give you a fresh appreciation for what he went through for us. And will give you the realization he knows what you feel like. This will broaden your understanding. Suffering's tough, but good things come out of it. Number eight, if operating properly, spiritual gifts will cause the uninformed to worship. If God uses you to minister effectively to somebody and it changes their life, they're going to even go so far as maybe fall down and say, this is God, I know it's God. Years ago, I parked cars for a living. I worked at the Crescent Hotel in Dallas. Vendors would come and go and you get to know some of them. There was this massage therapist that would come in and serve customers. She was a legitimate licensed therapist. She had a lot of problems, and we got to know her. I can't remember her name right now. We would sometimes park her car. One day she came in, and we noticed her car had been wrecked really bad. It was a convertible. The top wouldn't go all the way down, and the steering wheel was wobbly, and like there were bugs living in the car now. It was really tough. She's going through a tough time. Over the course of getting to know her while I worked there, I invited her to church one Sunday. We went to Shady Grove at the time. And somebody at that service had a word and said, there's somebody here that has a car that's a piece of junk. And went on to describe how terrible this car was. Oh, oh, just on and on. It went on a little bit too long about it. And the elders were like, what in the world is this prophecy? But even though your car is like this, God wants you to know he loves you, he cares for you, and he's glad you're here. She turned to me and said, is that for me? I said, yes. <laughs> Later on in the service, somebody else had a word for somebody's wrist to be healed. And she said, you know that car wreck hurt my wrist, and it affects my career as a massage therapist. Can I stand for prayer for that? Yes. So they asked for people to stand. They had wrist issues, and she stood, and people gathered around her and prayed for her. And her wrist began to get better. The next day she called me, so excited. She says, you know, I got prayer for my wrist, but I didn't get prayer for a growth that was growing under my eye, and it's gone. I said, well, the Lord does more than you ask her things. She said, yes, but don't you have to believe for something to happen? You know, like you got to believe. She says, no, just receive. Yeah. So in her case, she knew God was in that place. Now, I've got to be brutally honest. A lot of times here, we've seen the opposite of this verse. People have not fallen down on their face and said, God is here. People have left here saying, those people are whacked. But I still contend for this promise to come to pass. No matter where we are, whether it's at church or at the grocery store or at home or in the neighborhood, God gives you a word for somebody. Go and deliver it. Minister life. And it will cause them to worship. He will worship God. This is about uninformed worshiping. Number nine, our command to praise comes from heaven. There's two passages of verses there where an audible voice in heaven says, Worship God. And number ten, the scriptures teach that Jesus sings praise with his people. How does he do this? He does this in two ways, he does this through his spirit. And he does this through his people. I was watching Britain Has Talent. You ever seen America Has Talent? It's a reality show. It's kind of like American Idol. Well, Britain Has Talent is the UK's form of that show. Simon Cowell asked this big black guy and said, Okay, what are you going to do now? Britain Has Talent, America Has Talent isn't just a singing show. People are magicians, they're acrobats, they do all kinds of things. What are you? And the black guy said, "I am a choir." <laughs> You're a what? I am a choir. You are a choir? Yes, I am. Okay, show your things. The lights grew dim, and he did this with one hand, as the people in the back balcony stood up and began to sing in perfect harmony. Then he did this. Some other people began to sing in perfect harmony. He did this. People came up behind him. And then he did this and they began to gather. And he's directing the choir without saying a thing. Now was he lying by saying he's the choir? He poured a lot of time and work into it, teaching them to sing. He's playing them like instruments at his direction. Could it be that what the Lord has done in our lives and our hearts that creates a song in us, that he's like a great musician creating a symphony from our lives?